The past 20 years have witnessed four fatal coronavirus outbreaks, and other coronaviruses will almost surely emerge over time. Protecting against future pandemics will therefore require research on coronaviruses in multiple species, as well as safe and broadly effective coronavirus vaccines. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with David Morens, Senior Advisor to the Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Dr. Morens has co-authored a perspective article about the need for universal coronavirus vaccines. Dr. Morens, how does SARS-CoV-2 compare with other coronaviruses that have caused widespread disease in the past? It's very hard to answer that question because most of the coronaviruses that have caused widespread disease in the past have become endemic long before the modern era. So we have four endemic coronaviruses, that is, in human beings, that circulate year-round around the globe, and they cause cold URIs or colds, but we don't know how they got there. So we can't compare SARS-CoV-2, the agent of COVID-19, to these other viruses, but it may end up that way. We hope that SARS-CoV-2 will become endemic and less fatal. We can compare SARS-CoV-2 to the SARS virus, which appeared in 2002 and 2003, and that virus threatened to become a pandemic, but was stopped by good public health. And so we know a lot about that original virus. It was more deadly than SARS-CoV-2, but it wasn't around long enough for us to make the kind of comparisons we'd like to have. So I think to answer your question, we could say this virus is sort of making it up as it goes along, and we have to learn from it. We're not in the driver's seat, we human beings. We scientists are just following what happens and trying to react to it. You write in your article that SARS-CoV-2 is unlikely to be eliminated, let alone eradicated. So going back to the endemicity that you were talking about, how do you project that this virus will circulate and cause disease in the future? Well, again, I don't have a crystal ball and I don't think any scientist really knows, but there are two sort of polar opposite possibilities that we should consider. And we don't know which one of them or something in between will become true. The possibility that we hope for is that it will become endemic. That is to say, as it continues to circulate, we're in the variant that's now called Omicron, which is sweeping much of the world. And if we're lucky, that will be the last major variant. It will eventually infect most people. And probably over time, it will become endemic. It won't go away. But the pandemic waves and the surges of patients in hospitals and high mortality will become lessened and become part of the background. That's the best case scenario we hope for, but we have no assurance we're going in that direction. The other possibility is that, like influenza, the virus SARS-CoV-2, the COVID-19 virus, keeps on mutating to escape population immunity. It's partially escaped population immunity now, which is to say that Omicron is not entirely prevented by immunity from people who were infected earlier with earlier variants like Alpha or even Delta. And it's not prevented by the vaccines which are being used, which are all made based on earlier versions of the virus. So I think Omicron is a partial escape from population immunity, but there's no way to know whether it can't do the same thing again and again, continually forever, or whether a variant can arise in the near future or later to completely escape immunity. And then we're back at ground zero. We're just back to where we were. If that happens, we're back to where we were in early 2020 when we had a brand new pandemic and no vaccines. So what do we know about 
the various animal sources of coronaviruses, including how many such viruses might already exist or may emerge in the future? Well, the type of coronaviruses we're talking about today, the ones that cause SARS and SARS-CoV-2, are beta coronaviruses called sarbacovirus. That's a small part of the tree of coronavirus. So let's just talk about those and not all the other ones that may not be relevant to human disease. As far as we know, the reservoir in nature for all of these sarbacoviruses, SARS-like viruses, is in bats, in a number of bat species, particularly rhinolophus bats, and particularly those that exist in Southeast Asia and contiguous parts of Southern and Southwest China. And as to how many there are, nobody really knows. Many hundreds, perhaps a thousand or more, have been identified by genetic sequencing, in some cases by whole genome sequencing, and in a few by isolation. But undoubtedly, many more exist, probably millions. And they exist not only in these bats, they exist in different unrelated bat species, at least transiently, and they spill over all the time, not only into human beings, but into all sorts of other animals. Virtually any animal that can come in contact with bats, any mammal, I should say, is possibly going to get infected by these viruses. And we know that animals in Southeast Asia, like civet cats, raccoon dogs, do become infected. And so there's at least two theoretical routes for humans to get infected. One is directly from the bats, and the other is through animals that have been infected by the bats. So I think the take-home message from all this is the viruses are prevalent in large geographic areas of nature. They will continue to emerge in humans and animals, and the implications of that are unclear. But you said, Dr. Morrissey, that we've had four pandemics of coronaviruses in the last 20 years. And so we don't know that we had any before then. So that would suggest that these emergencies are becoming more likely and certainly more deadly since the viruses we've seen now, like SARS-CoV-2, are more deadly than the endemic coronaviruses that emerged in the past. Given that landscape, you say in your article that we need a research approach that can characterize both the global coronaviral universe and the natural history and pathogenesis of coronaviruses in laboratory animals and in humans. So how would that type of effort be structured and coordinated? I think that major science funding agencies in all the countries that fund science, the United States certainly, European nations, India, and other countries, and there are many of them that fund science, need to work on this. And it's ideal that we work together because, as I mentioned a minute ago, these viruses exist in nature in the Southeast Asian countries, including Indonesia, and small slivers of southern China, southwest China. So that means this is an international problem. These viruses are in places that are unique and restricted geographically. And that's where the money is, quote unquote, where the money is, meaning that's where you're going to probably find the most important clues, the viral sequences, and so on, that will help us in vaccine development. So I think that international coordination is necessary. And remember that a pandemic implies something that's global. A global problem doesn't have a local solution. It has a global solution. So scientists and governments have to work together to coordinate this research, to share information, to work together in an open, sharing, collegial way to amass the evidence and the facts and the data that allows us to have clues about what we need to do to make better vaccines and otherwise better control the pandemic and future pandemics that haven't appeared yet, but surely will. 
So looking at vaccines, you also talk in your article about the importance of developing broadly protective coronavirus vaccines, perhaps universal. In what ways would these vaccines differ from our current COVID-19 vaccines? If you think about it, the current vaccines we have now, and in the United States, the two major ones are mRNA vaccines and also an adenovirus vector vaccine to a lesser extent. These vaccines are virus-specific. They're designed to prevent infection with the earliest iteration of SARS-CoV-2, which appeared in the United States in early 2020. But as everybody knows, if they're reading the newspaper anywhere in the world, Omicron is now spreading globally. And that's a virus that partially escapes the immunity afforded by prior natural infections and by prior vaccination. So we already have a situation where the virus-specific vaccine is not matched to the virus that's currently circulating. I want to also say that you mentioned the term universal vaccine. When scientists use that term, we mean it sort of in quotes, universal-like, because the technology to make a truly universal coronavirus vaccine isn't there yet, and it's not likely to be there in the near future. But surely we have the technology to make better vaccines that are in the direction of being more universal, if not totally universal. One not very satisfactory template for how to do that is the template we have for influenza vaccines. And I don't want to in any way imply that the situation with influenza is a model for the situation with SARS-CoV-2 because they're very different and unrelated viruses. But they're alike in that they're respiratory viruses and that they mutate as they circulate through partially immune populations. And with influenza vaccines, as most people know, the formula for making the vaccine changes every one to three years, roughly, because new variants come along. So that's one of the reasons we have to keep getting revaccinated every single year with a new flu vaccine every year. The other reason is that no matter how well matched the influenza virus and the influenza vaccine are, the duration of immunity doesn't last a full year, at least not very well. So that even with a great vaccine for influenza, a year later, that vaccine isn't going to be protective anymore. So we deal with that by having a program in which we recommend that everybody get an influenza vaccine every year. Worst case scenario, we would have to do that with SARS-CoV-2. But when we talk about universal vaccines, we're really talking about vaccines that don't exist yet, but that we hope we can develop in the future. And I said, we're not there yet. We don't have the technology to do it, but we need to learn the technology to make a vaccine that is broadly protective, not only against the current viruses that are circulating, but viruses that might mutate in the future and other viruses that are in nature, in bats, for example, that haven't emerged but might emerge in the future. If we had a vaccine with broad coverage, universal light or broad coverage against all coronaviruses, then we would be able to use those in public health protection of our population now for any coronavirus that's circulating, and also to be a step ahead in preventing pandemics of additional coronaviruses when they emerge in the future. Finally, what kind of research capacity and funding would a project like that require? It's hard to answer that question because such research is very expensive and very time-consuming, and you can't push a button and drop a lot of money on it and make it happen. The science of that sort has to go forward incrementally. So yes, it needs dedicated funding and dedicated effort of a lot of scientists, but it also needs time and it also needs 
doing more things that we don't do so much nowadays because they're expensive. For example, experimental animal models, not just mice, but develop better models and ultimately primates, non-human primates. And it will also require undoubtedly doing human studies, including human challenge studies. Now, it's probably not ethical or it hasn't been considered ethical widely to challenge healthy human beings with SARS-CoV-2. And in fact, even if we decided we could do that and we decided it was ethical, almost everybody's been infected now. So it's going to be hard to find non-immune people to challenge. But we can challenge people with the endemic coronaviruses, which are generally not very severe, don't cause severe disease. And we can learn about the immune response. Why is it, for example, that a person can get infected with SARS-CoV-2 and recover and have immunity and have antibody and have T cells and then get infected with the same virus all over again? Why does this happen? It happens with influenza and a number of other viruses as well the respiratory viruses that don't cause systemic disease. So we have to find out why that is. It certainly has something to do with the local immune system, but we don't have the details worked out. And I think the solution to that mystery means research in animals and human beings that will allow us to find out if there are determinants of permanent protective immunity that reside locally in the respiratory tract. And if there are, what are they and what variables affect them? And what can we do vaccine-wise to stimulate that sort of immunity? Thank you, Dr. Morins.